Welcome, everybody, to the Interventional Endoscopist podcast. Um, this is uh, McCovell Suchdave, and I'm your host. And um, today, I'm doing a little bit different format. This is going to be on YouTube, as well as Twitter and podcast apps and things like that. And this is our fourth podcast, and today, I'm going to be interviewing a really good friend of mine, Dr. Tufi Kachami. Uh, Dr. Kachami, uh, who you'll see on the video here, is a uh, therapeutic endoscopist in Arizona. He's in the greater Phoenix area and um, is the director of uh, endoscopy, head of the GI department, and I believe the chairman of medicine at the uh, Cancer Treatment Centers of America, which is now City of Hope. Uh, Dr. Kachami did his GI training at the Virginia Commonwealth University and his uh, therapeutic endoscopy training at Mayo Clinic Scottsdale. And he's been in practice for about 11 years, I want to say. And uh, I've known him since day one, and he's a fantastic endoscopist and a great guy. And one, the couple of reasons we wanted to interview him, or I wanted to interview him, was that he recently took an initiative and started a special interest group with the ASGE based on endoscopic oncology. And over the last two years, he's um, created and directed a very successful therapeutic endoscopy course centered on endoscopic oncology. Yeah, it just happened last weekend, and we tried to get this done beforehand so we could help promote it a little bit, but um, that's okay. We can look forward to it for next year. So um, with that being said, Dr. Kashami, why don't you talk to us a little bit about your background? <laughs> yeah, first, Mike, uh, thanks for having me, and congratulations on on the podcast. I think that's a fantastic idea, and, and it's it's always great to see you. Uh, uh, in terms of uh, background, uh, you know, I'm a, that's way I'll describe myself is I'm a father for three boys. I've been uh, married for uh, 11 years. And uh, we've been in Phoenix for 12 years now. Uh, born and raised in Lebanon until my uh, mid-20s when I moved to the United States uh, to go to uh, residency in North Carolina, uh, where I met my wife. And we've been together since then. Uh, my... Uh, uh, I describe myself as a wellness and enthusiast, <laughs> and uh, I don't think I work at all uh, because I love my job and it doesn't feel like work. And what about, um, tell us a little bit more about your, your childhood. What uh, got you to go into medicine and, and, and how did you make the decision to uh, cross the pond, as they say? Yeah, I I uh, I was a very good in math growing up, and I never imagined myself that I'll, I'll go into something that does not require math. But my mother, the first time this uh, occurred to me, my mother was sick. My mo my mother had a lot of illnesses when we were growing up, and one time she was in the hospital for nine months, and you know physicians would uh, come and go for a few minutes, and I did not feel that any of them showed me the love or you know the the caring, and uh, that's when I started getting the idea. Hey. I think people who care about other people should be should be doing this job, and people who you know want to make you feel better, not just come in and check an order. Uh, and that's that's when I started thinking about medicine. And then around the age of uh, seventeen is when I debated on you know engineering medicine, engineering medicine, and you know most of us make these decisions with a lot of, with a lot of, without a lot of uh, information. And I felt, you know, it was a calling. I'm just going to jump into it. And uh, it, it was, it's, I have no regrets. I love it. Yeah. No, and I think that's one thing that um, 
I see a lot in uh, my friends and uh, uh, people that I know that you know went to medical school abroad is that you're you're asked to make that decision. You know whether you want to be a doctor, lawyer, mechanic, baker, whatever it is, you, you have to make that decision at 17. And I think you know when you uh, at least in the Indian system you make that decision. And I think a lot of guys or girls when they're done at 21, they're like, "What? Well, what did I do with my career? Like, wh why did I do this?" You know. And I think. Um, the one benefit of the American system, while it takes longer, is that you do get that time to kind of mature. And, and fortunately for you, you made the right choice, you know, and, and that's always a good thing. So, um, And so then you ended up in Phoenix and talk a little bit about your interventional training, uh, your mentors and, and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, so I, uh, um, uh, I am, ended up, uh, I think it was the second year of interventional GI training. Uh, so they were not organized into what they are now, you know, match system. So it was a phone call, hey, do you want to come here? And, you know, my wife's standing there and, you know, I got a few phone calls and then we made the decision to move to Arizona and come to Mayo Clinic. Uh, one of the best decisions I've, I've made. And actually, I give my wife the credit. She's always the one who made that decision. Because she was choosing okay. based on where, where, where she wanted to live. And that's why he's smart because he gives his wife the credit for everything. <laughs> All right. And uh, you know, I trained with uh, uh, Doug Fagel, who was one of the fathers of the U.S. Yes. I'm grateful for for what he taught me in terms of uh, U.S. and and uh, Edwin Harrison trained me on the RCP, and then Raul Punala, you know, common friend, and trained me on everything else. And <laughs> I we, we're still very close. Uh, they they supported me when I left. They continue on supporting me when I, when I have a, a tough question or a career decision I have to make. I call on one of them and ask for their opinion. Uh, training at Mayo was like a utopia, a little bit unreal. I mean, you train there, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. There's, there are a lot of resources for the fellow. I had my own secretary as a fellow, <laughs> yeah. which, which, you know, other bases don't have that. Yeah. I think it's hard to go from uh, Mayo to general population, or as I like to say, Gen Pop, because you know you, you, you write an order for a CT scan, and and before you get up from the computer, the guy's rolling in to get the patient. And you know, in the real world, so to speak, you know, uh, we we have a lot, a lot of times where we we don't get that luxury. Uh, but it's a fantastic place to train. And yeah, I, I think I've heard of Dr. Fagel. He sounds like he's a pretty famous guy. He wrote a textbook or something, I think. So. <laughs> The first text, textbook on endoscopic oncology. Actually. Yeah, yeah, he did. Which, which that sets us up for my next question, actually, because um, you recently took the initiative to start the endoscopic oncology special interest group for ASGE. So, can you talk a little bit about what got you into that and and uh, how that plays a role into your uh, current work and everything? Yeah, I, I've been doing uh, this for uh, eleven years. Uh, basically, I, I'm an endoscopist in a cancer center. Uh, and uh, it was clear to me that there's a big gap between endoscopy and gastroenterology training and what uh, cancer patients need. And at the same time, the multi-screening team does not really know uh, and has a hard time keeping up with all the tools that we have coming up and uh, our procedures, what are the potential adverse events, how do they interact with, with the systemic therapy and things like that. Uh, and uh, as I started asking out or originally looking myself, like, where, where do I uh, learn this information? There was nothing dedicated for this field. Uh, uh, Doug Fagel's uh, book, you know, it's an, it's an old book, but that was dedicated for this field. 
Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, there are no journals uh, really for for that field. Uh, you you have to chase where you know a publication here, a publication there, and even the guidelines. When you look at at the guidelines in cancer patients for the American Society of Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, they're very outdated. Yeah. Uh, so I felt that we need to bridge that gap between endoscopists and the multidisciplinary cancer team, uh, one through education, and then we also need to step up our research and guideline development specifically for cancer patients. You know, what you do in someone who has who's on chemotherapy is very different than what you do with someone on immunotherapy and very different for someone who does not have cancer. Uh, but most of our guidelines, you know, for example, talk about uh, uh, a procedure itself, but not a procedure in the setting of cancer. Right. Uh, so, and, and this is a field that's very growing, actually. There's a lot of need for what we do. Uh, I, as I said in my course, for every thousand new patients starting, chemo, starting systemic therapy in a cancer center, there are 2,000 encounters with the GR team. So right. what we do is not is not small. Uh, so I felt we needed something dedicated to focus on this area, uh, improve education, research, and guideline development. And I, I made the proposal to the American Society of Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, and they said you need 100 signatures from interested members. And you know, oh, that's what I called on you and a lot of the folks who really have worked today. Would you support this? And I'm grateful. Within a couple of weeks, we got the signatures. Well, I, you know, and I, th I think it's actually really interesting because um, I was having a conversation earlier today with somebody else, and um, you know, you and I trained uh, 2010, 11 that time frame, and at that point, you know, the fourth year fellowship was just kind of starting. You were just getting you know 30 or 40 programs, and now we're at 75 programs. But the more that this field advances, I'm I'm becoming more convinced that we can't just have a fourth year fellowship. You're going to need to do a fourth year fellowship with special emphasis on third space endoscopy or on uh, advanced tissue resection, endobariatrics. And I think endoscopic oncology is probably headed that direction because one thing I am eagerly waiting to see when this happens is all the things that our IR colleagues are doing, whether it's therospheres or um, what they're doing, you know, brachytherapy or injection. I, I, it's only a matter of time before we are able to do this endoscopically. And I think as you get into that world, um, it may not be enough just to be a really good endosonographer who can do an FNA and, and maybe do you know an axios or necrosectomy, but you've got to be able to understand the chemo aspect of it, the radiation aspect of it. So I, th I think what you're starting in, in, and I'm going to call it today is is basically the the foundation for another uh, special super specialization within therapeutic endoscopy. So um, I'm really going to be here to watch how that goes. Yeah. I 100% agree. I 100% agree. I think this is going to be a super specialty. And, you know, one of our goals in the future would be to develop a, a, a rotation that we can offer for either fourth-year fellows or someone after their fourth year if they want to spend three months and yeah. learn the, the cancer basics, uh, the basics of chemotherapy, immunotherapy, uh, and radiation, and, and how these interact with our procedures. Yeah. No, and I think it's 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 a great idea because you know, being such a young uh, subspecialty within therapeutic endoscopy, you can learn from the mistakes that this that we've made as a community in terms of ERCP training and uh, EUS training, and all the kind of shortcomings that are there, and and learning how to kind of incorporate that into a new field and learning from the mistakes of past. So, 
Uh, look forward to that. Um, so I guess your interest in this also led you to create this course that, as I mentioned earlier, was just last weekend, very successful, very popular in the Phoenix area, had people, big names coming from around the country to speak. Um, tell, tell me how you kind of came up with that idea and, and, and uh, how you intend to, where you intend to see it going in the future. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, part of what I do is I go to oncology courses and usually I'm the only gastroenterologist there. <laughs> and uh, when I started going to GI schools, uh, for you know those who are not familiar with GI ASCO, is the American Society of, of Clinical Oncology, and GI ASCO is their small uh, course or uh, or small meeting that is focused on gas on gastrointestinal cancer. That small uh, meeting it has six thousand people. You know, it's 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 uh, it's not as small, but for gastroenterologists it seems small. Right. Being there, the only uh, gastroenterologist. Uh, I felt that we need something that is more focused on for on gastroenterology in cancer and not basically very heavy oncology. Uh, and so I, I go and learn from GI ASCO and try to summarize what comes from GI ASCO, add it to our, add it to, to our meeting. And also GI ASCO, while it has surgeons, uh, it's still very heavy uh, oncology. So uh, and and mostly medical oncology. So the the radiation oncologists are there and the surgical oncologists are there, but most of the uh, studies presented and most of the information provided is more heavy on the medical oncology side. And one of the comments that I that we we get in our meeting, whether last year or this year, is it feels truly multidisciplinary. There's no dominant. Uh, field, you know, it's not 80% medical oncology and and 20% something else because what we have the surgeons, the oncologists, the radiation oncologists, we have IR, uh, and so the discussion between the disciplines is is makes it a lot more engaging, a lot uh, more interesting, and a lot more fun, and and it really bridges that gap that we're that that I'm talking about because we're all sharing our data. You know, oncologists right. don't read GI journals. Gastroenterologists right. don't read oncology journals. Yes. Well, and if you think you're lucky if a GI reads a GI journal, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so when we're there talking about our data, you know, you can say, hey, our study showed this, and they say, well, our study showed this. How do you reconcile the two? Right. Uh, so, so short of having this kind of interaction, it's very difficult to come to a consensus, which is what the field needs. Hey, this is what we need to do for this patient. Yeah. Uh, and, and from the from the endoscopic end, no, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think, I think, um, yeah, I think as we get more and more information um, across all subspecialties, we're going to be finding that our, our borders within our fields are melting. I mean, I, I don't know that we'll ever have, you know, a GI ortho meeting, but definitely, you know, GI with pulmonary, GI with oncology, GI with IR. It, it's definitely the the walls are, are the boundaries are blurring. So. Yeah. So I'm I'm glad you said that because the vision of the meeting is to grow into into uh, interventional oncology. Right. Uh, this the field of interventional oncology now is dominated by uh, interventional radiology. So uh, when you say interventional oncology, most people think of interventional radiology. Right. Right. Uh, and I, when I think of interventional oncology, I think of interventional pulmonary, interventional pain, interventional radiology. Mm -hmm. And interventional gastroenterology. So as we build on the meeting, eventually when we want to bring pulmonary, we want to have a session for pain. Right. Um, 
So, so it becomes a true multidisciplinary interventional oncology course. <coughs> Sorry. Where there's discussion between the different disciplines on how to advance the field. No, it makes it makes a lot of sense, and I mean, what better place to do that than Arizona and in uh, Washington? <laughs> Hopefully, next time it can be a couple of days, and we can bring some you know, people can bring their golf clubs if they want. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think next year we're planning on two half days. That's great. It was very long day. Yeah, well, I think that's the beauty of being able to do things in in Phoenix or in our area is that we probably have outside of three months of the year the best weather in the country, and and uh, you know to come here and. Uh, see something different and learn something and then maybe even be able to bring your family and enjoy it. It's, it's actually a great thing for people to come. Um, I want, I wanted to touch on another thing in your, in your specialty or well, in your world, uh, you're one of the few um, docs or interventional endoscopists in the country uh, who are on the forefront of cryotherapy. Um, and, you know, I know you've um, done several talks uh, for the different platforms for cryo and it's not something that we see a lot of in Phoenix at the moment. I mean, we do have um, some of our interventional colleagues around town are starting to dabble in it, but you were kind of one of the first to do that. So kind of set that up for me. How did you get into it? And and again, where, you, where are you uh, seeing that going as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I was fortunate to train with Alvin Zifas, one of the fathers of uh, uh, cryotherapy. Uh, and I trained on, cryo on cryotherapy in my third year. Uh, so before I did the uh, interventional uh, training, and uh, there was really no data on it, but I started seeing the patients getting the procedures, feeling better, able to eat, happier. Uh, and I personally have never been satisfied with the outcomes of stent, of stents. I think on paper they look a lot better than in 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 real life. Uh, and when I joined the, the cancer center here, uh, I, I like to do research and. It was for me. It was a very low-hanging fruit. I know it uh, about the technology and technique that not many people uh, know about, uh, and there's no data on it. It was in the guidelines, so you know it, it was the, the guidelines say you can use it because people knew that it helps, but without data. So it was very easy to just do the procedure and collect data and right. see. Uh, where the outcomes, what what was not uh, available before uh, is any uh, any uh, procedures done on patients who are getting chemotherapy. We do not know how safe it was. And right. could you combine chemotherapy with cryotherapy? So people knew that uh, cryotherapy helped people uh, with esophageal cancer swallow, uh, but did not know how to use it, what the, what those should be used, uh, and can you combine it with chemotherapy? And I took it upon myself to answer all of these questions. I think five years into it, I think I have the answer. It's safe. Patients on chemotherapy actually probably works better. Uh, we we have our publication being processed now. It, it seems to work better in people who, if you if you have do it very close to chemotherapy, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it uh, uh, we figured out the dosing. So hopefully our publication will will be processed positively and will come out soon, and we'll have all of these answers. Uh, uh, to to the questions that we've had, the people always talk about, and uh, hey, what do you do? Yeah, and and did not really do anything to advance the field. Yeah, and I'm sorry I'm laughing. I'm just going to apologize if anybody can hear a child screaming in the background. I have my nephew from Australia here, and uh, something just uh, riled him up, so he's running around and you know trying to keep it quiet. But we all have home lives, so apologies to the listening audience. <laughs> 
I, I love kids and nothing to apologize about having a kid around. <laughs> it's nice to uh, to have him with you. Yeah. Yeah, I know they're visiting and so uh, you know we have a very loud household right now. So <laughs> awesome. Well, no, I look forward to the publication because I think it's something that a lot of us have. Uh, you know, the reps have approached us. Um, me specifically, I've been approached several times. You know, by different companies. Do you want to do cryo and the answer is always, yeah, but, you know, and, and I think with a good publication, it will help to move that forward because obviously stents are great for some things, but when you're putting them in an esophageal tumor and, you know, that patient retches very violently a few days later and you come and now you've got a stent looking at you in the stomach, you know, and, and, and how do you get it out? There's a big tumor above it. And so, so I, I think, you know, something like a cryo that debulks and allows that patient to have a good... Uh, quality of life and sit at the dinner table with their family. I think th those type of things are something things that we should be pursuing. You know, outside of obviously curative things, but you know, I, I think when you're talking about uh, somebody who's suffering from a complication of cancer, I mean, I feel like you're trying to make them have as normal of a life as possible, in addition to lengthening their life. You know, so um, that, that's great. Um, and then one other thing that you mentioned earlier, um, when you were a child or when you were in high school, you um, you were really into math, and um, you were going back and forth between um, medicine and engineering. And I think the engineering gene didn't really leave you because um, you had a very interesting opportunity to uh, participate in this uh, Shark Tank-like experience at ACG um, a few years ago. Can you, can you talk about that, talk about the device and, and where you're at with that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, uh, you know, the uh, the American Gastroenterological Association puts on a Shark Tank-like, uh, you know, I call it Nerd Shark Tank. <laughs> uh, so, the AGA, not as a Yeah, the AGA. Uh, yeah. In, uh, in San Francisco every year, and I went to a couple conferences, and and I uh, I I have few patents, so one of my ideas is that, hey, I'm, I'm going to pitch it there. Uh, and it happened, it was the year that COVID started, so they canceled the meeting, made it. Uh, virtual <laughs> and uh, I uh, pitched the idea and uh, fortunately uh, you know I won I, I won the popular vote and the, and the judges vote uh, and uh, that uh, really uh, thanks to the AGA uh, accelerated the track uh, for, for this needle uh, the needle now uh, we just had the version 4 uh, you know been uh, working on it uh, I partnered with Microtech on it uh, and they have been phenomenal to work with. So we're on uh, version four. We're, we're probably going to go to the FDA now. And it's an EUS access needle, uh, basically to access the bile duct for failed ERCPs for rendezvous or access the intrahepatic ducts if you don't want to use contrast you know, or access anywhere you want to access a call letter or, or cyst. And, uh, that's amazing. Did you have a name for it yet? Have you named the device yet or no? We don't have any. I mean, we, the, the name we used uh, during the Shark Tank, and that I had to come up with the name, you know. They they called me when I was like, what's the name? What's the name? Uh, I used Sure Access Needle, but I don't. I, I can't say we have a name yet. Well, if, if anyone listening or watching uh, has ideas, put them in the comments, and maybe uh, maybe Tafik will work with you on the naming rights. <laughs> Absolutely. We'd love it. <laughs> All right. And so, um, yeah, no, so I think, I think, you know, that kind of gets us to where we are. Is there anything else you want to say about any of the topics we talked about? I know we talked about a few of them. We talked about uh, the, uh, the SIG, we talked about uh, your conference, we talked about Shark Tank cryotherapy. Anything you wanted to add um, or your thoughts uh, on any of those things or anything else that we haven't covered? 
Yeah, I want to thank you for for this. This is fun, and uh, I want to thank you for this idea. You know, I've uh, always looked up to, you know, what you're always up to, and uh, <laughs> I think I think this is fantastic. Yeah, it's it's a fun way to talk to my friends, right? So <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So thanks for having me, and thanks for uh, for doing. We're uh, uh, my nurse practitioner. And I were talking about your podcast and how we're enjoying them. So oh, thank, you. thank you, thank you a lot for that. And as we sign off, just wanted to remind everybody listening or watching that you know. Uh, if you're not a member of the ASGE or uh, FIGHT, uh, you should really consider joining those as an interventional endoscopist. Uh, ACG and AG are great societies as well. Obviously, as GI doctors, we we have so many different ways that we can spend our money, you know, ASLD. But, um, you know, I think ASGE and FIGHT are two of the ones that I really consider. Um, and, you know, if you're a hospital or your system pays for it, make them pay for all five, you know, so it's fine. Um, and finally, you know, I always say this at the end of my podcast for any, uh, physician who's struggling, uh, mental health is a big problem. We see a lot of physician suicides in the U S, uh, reach out to your friend, reach out to your neighbor, reach out to me, reach out to anybody, you know, Twitter, Instagram, whatever, but you know, don't do anything drastic and, you know, things get better. So, so definitely we'll talk through your issues and, and, um, uh, try not to uh, let it get the best of you. So uh, thank you, everybody, and we'll be signing off. And uh, thank you to Dr. Tuvi Kachami over at Cancer Treatment Centers of America, soon to be called City of Hope. <laughs> thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. All right, it. take care. Thank you. Bye.